All right, welcome back, everyone. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Good evening, Father David. This is our final class. That's right. And nobody, uh, the pop quiz, when does that take place? Uh, well, midway through. Midway through. Oral exams. So please lead us in prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven to us from you. We pray that you would be with us this evening and send your spirit of love into our midst to guide us in our discussion. May all that we come to see be for our greater response to the gospel in our lives and for the sanctification of our souls so that in word, thought, and deed we might give glory to your holy name. And we ask this as all things, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, welcome back to our third and final session on interiorized monasticism. And as we begin, I just want to offer a word of thanks uh, for these past couple of weeks. This is the first time I've been able to put together a talk on this subject. It's been in my mind for the last 30 years, so it's good to work it through uh, a little bit and also to get some feedback on it as well. And I want to thank Father Val in particular for the invitation and the hospitality. Uh, over these past weeks, we've been talking about interiorized monasticism, what that looks like, and in particular, those who been the proponents of it, and uh, especially a Russian theologian named Paul Evdekimov. His name has come up quite frequently over the past couple of weeks. And so if you have an opportunity to read his works, uh, in particular, there's one called uh, The Sacrament of Love, which is about marriage, and also one that's called The Struggle with God. Uh, you might find it under another title, but uh, his work is extraordinary, writes with a great clarity, but also it's very substantive. So uh, some good spiritual reading for you. Uh, but he developed this thought long, uh, this uh, idea many years ago that uh, what we receive from the fathers, in particular the desert fathers, and from their life in the desert, the wisdom that emerged from it about the ascetic life, um, how one prays, one, how one struggles with the passions, fosters virtues, uh, how one begins uh, to uh, be able to see temptation as it comes upon us, as we are provoked towards it, and how we are to respond. All these things that they learn from this great experiment of going into the desert is not something that is archaic or meant for a different age or even meant simply for monks or nuns, but it is part of the patrimony of the church and it is meant to guide us still to this day, that this is the spirituality, if you will. This is the spiritual tradition of the faith and we are to be embracing the wisdom that has come to us from them, that we face all the same things in our life that they faced. It was simply going into the desert that they were able to see it with a greater clarity. They had stripped themselves of everything, material goods, family. They had moved themselves into this exile of the desert. And as we had mentioned, the desert was seen typically as a place of doing battle with demons. And so they went there to engage in the spiritual struggle. 
And they did not, not go there, though, to establish monasticism. That wasn't in their mind, nor were there vows or anything like that at this point. Uh, if you remember, Christianity had been embraced by the culture at that point, especially under Constantine, and very quickly a kind of lukewarmness began to pervade the church. Uh, what we saw in the great heroism and courage of the early Christians simply by calling themselves Christians going to martyrdom, that uh, that began to cool and wane as it, uh, Christianity was accepted by the culture. And so the monks go to the desert in order to be saved, quite simply in order to be able to embrace the gospel in its fullness, that their minds and their hearts might be set on fire for God, that they might give themselves fully to Christ, withholding nothing. And it's from this, I think, that we, we gain the most, that through this spiritual battle, we are given an insight into our own life that remains for us today. And uh, what we see in the East is a kind of a homogeneity in the spiritual tradition, the anthropology, our understanding of what it is to be a human being, the psychology, as well as the spirituality, how we engage in the spiritual life. There's been a surprising consistency throughout the centuries that has, have existed all the way from the Desert Fathers to, to today. And this has all been compiled to us in works like the Philokalia, the Evergetinos, the great writers like St. John Climacus, St. John Cassian brought it to the West. And so we have all of this at our fingertips to help guide us in the spiritual life, even though in our day there might not be many spiritual elders uh, available to guide us. We have though the writings of these great fathers where they themselves can be our guides in the spiritual life. And so Evdekimov wants to pass this on to us, first and foremost by telling us that this is meant for us and we are to interiorize it in every way. And so we spent the first group primarily reflecting upon what he meant by that and some of the things I've already mentioned. And uh, last week we began to look at what he identified as the five fundamental elements of interiorizing this spirituality. You remember the first was uh, prayer itself that something emerges for us in Christianity that had never existed before. Primarily the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're temples of God. The Spirit dwells within us. That Spirit that searches the very depths of God, searches our depths as well. But we're told in the scripture, cries out from the depths of our hearts with groans beyond words. So our prayer is taken up by the Spirit of God himself and perfected and the Desert Fathers teach us that we are not simply to approach prayer as if it was one discipline among others in our lives. That in fact it is so important for us that we are to become prayer. That it is to be the very essence of who we are as human beings. We're to be prayer incarnate. And they developed even a form of prayer to help foster that uh, within the mind and the heart. These arrow prayers, very short, sometimes a line from the scriptures. St. John Cassian used, O God, come to my assistance. O Lord, make haste to help me. And what we see though in the tradition primarily arises the Jesus prayer uh, that arises from scripture, again, from the gospels. Uh, partly from the prayer of the publican, but also the prayer of the blind man on the side of the road. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
and it captures in essence who God is for us and also our, who we are before him and our need, our need for his mercy. And with this prayer that almost became like their breath, they allowed it to form the mind and the heart so deeply that they would pray it without ceasing. So going to bed at night, it would be the last thing on their lips. And in the morning when they would uh, come into consciousness, they would find themselves saying this prayer. So the first thought in the morning is God and what is needed for the day ahead. So the first element then of this interiorizing of the monastic spirituality is to pray, to pray without ceasing, but also to become prayer incarnate. And this tells us something important about who we are as human beings, that our life is to revolve around God and that relationship with him that our identity as such, as those who have been made sons and daughters of God through Christ, who have been redeemed not only of our sin, but have been raised up to this higher level to participate in the very life of the Holy Trinity, deification, or theosis, the, the fathers called it. This is what we are called to, and called to participate in even now. And so our whole life is to revolve around this identity. Everything that we do, the work of our day, our relationships, if we're married, our, our relationship with our spouse or with our children, uh, as priests, how we celebrate the divine liturgy, how we hear confessions, all of this is to revolve around this relationship with God and the grace that flows to us from him. And this is important, I think, in our day. I'm not going to say too much about this because we've already spent a group on it. But so often, Christianity can uh, become very programmatic, uh, some, like so many of the other things within our world, or kind of self-help. How do I get through my day-to-day -day life? How do I hold my marriage together? How do I get past my depression or my anxiety? And so we can turn to spirituality as a, a, a way of bolstering us up, or even it can become a defense mechanism for us. Life can be so difficult. We can know so many deep and lasting wounds, scars from the past, that we take hold of religion and religious practices in order to keep us moving forward in our day-to-day -day life, to prevent that reality from crushing us. And so religion and asceticism can become the most powerful of, of psychological defense mechanisms. And if we do not have this unceasing prayer that is constantly drawing us into the depths of our relationship with God, our practice of religion can become perfunctory. It can become a matter of course. Uh, if you remember, I mentioned one monk saying that if we pray a little bit in the morning and a little bit at night and we go to confession every once in a while and we go to divine liturgy and that's the extent of our spiritual life, then it is an auxiliary construction. This monk in the desert of Egypt says, Freud got it right. If this is the extent of our religion and if this is how we engage in our faith, simply in this episodic way these little moments that we think about it and we think about God and we think about prayer, it's really not our entering into our full dignity and destiny as those who've been made sons and daughters of God. 
This identity is to pervade every aspect of our life and to fill our consciousness. This is why they embrace Paul's teaching to pray without ceasing so seriously, so that God doesn't slip out to the margins of our life. If we are praying every once in a while, we can forget about God for days on end, or he might come to mind in a moment, but slip out as fast as, fast as he came into our minds, and then we go about our daily work as usual. But in that sense, we are not different from anybody else in the world around us. And I think we've worked so hard as Christian men and women to fit in, to enculturate ourselves to the point that we've lost hold of our fundamental identity, that we are to conform ourselves to Christ. We are to put on the mind of Christ and to live for God and God alone. It is this reality that must shape our identity and every single thing that we do. And more often than not, it is put at the end of a long to-do list for us, a checklist where we think about prayer and it gives us a sense, well, we've covered all the bases. Our faith can become fire insurance, if you will. And we can find comfort in that, consolation in it in times of need, but is it really transformative? And is it really what God has called us to be and to bear witness to in the world? So prayer and prayer without ceasing. The second thing that we talked about was eschatological maximalism, big word for a simple idea that for us as Christian men and women, we understand that these are the end times. And I mentioned to you my mom asking me when she sees all the things going on in the news and in the world, when's Christ coming? You know, when, when, when's he going to come and do something about this? And the answer that I have to give is always the same. He's already come and he's already present and these are the end times. God has revealed himself uniquely, distinctively, uh, we might even say fully in Christ. There's nothing more to make known to us, nothing more to give us than the perfect love of his only begotten son. God has manifested himself in his full identity in and through his word, his word that has become incarnate and that has redeemed us and has not only redeemed us from our sin, but has poured forth the gift of his own spirit upon us. He's given us the Eucharist to nourish us uh, in, in this identity uh, and in order that we might be Christ for the world around us. And so every moment for us, having this clear sense of this eschatological maximalism that we're living in the moment as if this is the end times, then every moment for us becomes freighted with destiny. It becomes an opportunity for us to love God and to give ourselves in love to others, an opportunity that we either take or that we let pass us by. We can't live in the past and change that. All that will happen is that we'll ruminate on it. And nor can we live in the future. We have to live in the present moment and take hold of the grace of God that is given to us now. 
mentioned this in a past group, this is why we never want to let a moment of inspiration, especially a call to prayer or to a call to serve another person in need, pass us by and wait for another convenient time. I will begin my prayer roll tomorrow or I'll help that person when I've finished this task. The problem with that is that we are often not being attentive to the word of God, of his call, come to me, come to me in prayer, or come to me in this poor one, or in this widow, or this one who's in prison, this one who has no one to take care of them, this elderly person who lives in isolation. If we let those moments pass by, we're not living, we're not living in, in the moment. And so prayer, eschatological maximalism. And then the final three things are actually a unit, the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We've had a tendency in this spiritual tradition to see these as tied to those who take religious vows, monks or nuns. And so they would vow in their life to embrace a life of poverty, to set aside ownership of worldly goods, that they would simply engage in the monastic life, be supported by the community, work for the community, but they would have no property of their own. Uh, chastity, that they would forego uh, relations with others. And so, and this is already a misunderstanding. We often will conflate chastity and celibacy where they are two different things. And I'll break that apart for us a little bit here tonight. Uh, uh, chastity is really about purity of, of heart. It's not only about virginity. So poverty, chastity, and obedience. Obedience, again, we think of somebody entering into a monastery, embracing a role, being obedient to the abbot, uh, and, or children being obedient perhaps to their parents. But we never think of obedience as being, again, part and parcel of our identity as Christian men and women. That these three evangelical councils are something that we are to be th thinking about on a daily basis about how do I live this perfectly? Because embracing these three things, poverty, chastity, and obedience, we're, being, we're living in conformity to Christ. We see these manifest in their perfection in him. And so if we embrace his spirit, then it is th these realities that we are to live in our day-to-day -day life. Last week we talked about poverty. In particular, Avdekimov does a wonderful job in pulling these apart for us by helping us examine them through the three temptations of Christ on, uh, after his period of time in the desert of fasting. He's weak, he's hungry after fasting for 40 days and immediately the evil one comes to him and seeing his hunger he says, turn the stones into bread. And so use your power, let go of that bodily hunger and instead fill yourself. So part of the temptation is to let go of creation in the way that God has made it and to let go of our identity in relationship to him as well. To seize for ourselves the things of this world 
not simply to sustain us or in the way that God would intend us to use them, but to use them in such a way that we can uh, fill ourselves not only with what we need, but to satiety and beyond. And that we can even seek to provide a sense of security for us. Remember the individual in the gospel, the farmer who has so much grain. He says, what am I supposed to do? And he says, I know what to do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and fill them up. And we hear in the gospel, he's called that day a fool. You fool, this day you will die. And all of that will come to mean nothing whatsoever where you've neglected the state of your soul. You have not nourished yourself upon that which is most important. And remember Christ's response to the demon. It's that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so we see with the becoming of Christ, a changing of reality take place. This movement away from the reality of the fall and the impact of that. You will live by the sweat of your brow. You will feed yourself only by engaging in this labor in the, in the world. You will be guided by law, not only the law set up by the culture, but the law that will come to you through Moses as well. And so you, you will be bound in particular ways and have to labor through this life, not in freedom, but rather almost in a kind of slavery. One is shackled by one's sins, now to this reality of corruption, and not knowing the fullness that one had known with God prior to the fall. Now you will have to labor for the very things of existence itself in order to sustain yourself since that communion, that union was broken. With the coming of Christ though, we see something different emerge. That that shackle is broken. And this call to obedience is not a, a call to a lack, but rather to a freedom. Live by nourishing yourself upon what not only feeds you within this world, but what endures unto eternity. Nourish yourself upon the word of God and everything else will be given to you. You will come to see what it is that you need to do to provide for yourself and your family. But the most important thing is to nourish yourself upon what only is not going to sustain you in this life, but is going to raise you up to share in the fullness of the life of the most holy trinity. This is what is offered to you. And so man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And our struggle here is that we often will want to go back. We're very much like the Hebrews that were brought out of Egypt. Why did you bring us out into this reality when back in Egypt, in our slavery, we at least had cucumbers and other things that we could eat? Why did you bring us out along this path to freedom, to the promised land, when we had at least the basic needs in, in Egypt? Our tendency is to go back to that, to want the comfort and the security, even in what we know brings hardship to our life, poverty, anxiety. What we are offered in Christ is something far greater. We are nourished upon a word that transforms us and raises us up to share in the eternal life of God. 
that word is not only heard in an audible fashion, but we receive it in and through the Holy Eucharist. So we come to know God, we come to know his truth, not only by hearing it through this teaching, but by receiving it into our, our very being. And in and through this, we are nourished in the deepest possible fashion. And if we allow ourselves to walk along this path, again, it brings us to a great, greater freedom. Uh, our tendency is, again, to misuse the things of this world or to be anxious about finding ourselves wanting. And this is what the monks found themselves free of when they went into the desert. Our, our great fear is that, what would my life be if I gave myself over fully to the gospel? If I responded to the times that Christ called me in my life, come follow me. And if I drop my nets and my boat, whatever those realities are, and responded to a specific call. If I embraced the Beatitudes in my life, what would my, the shape of my life look like? Would I find myself vulnerable in the midst of this world that is hostile and aggressive? Would I find myself wanting, impoverished? Would I find myself victimized? And so the evil one always works to create a doubt and anxiety in our mind that we will find ourselves wanting if we give ourselves over the, to this reality, that it's not the path to life, to freedom, to the fullness of love, but the, the opposite. And so the same temptation that it was put to Christ is, is put to us as well. Take hold of the things that are around you, that you can see, that you can touch, that are concrete, build up a store for yourself so that you never find yourself wanting rather than living from moment to moment, trusting that God in his providence is going to provide for us. And we talked a little bit last time how individuals like St. Francis of Assisi uh, become like living icons of this reality for us too, or living icons of the gospel, that Francis embraces this radical poverty, he lives in the moment and trusts in the word of God in this radical way and comes to know this deep inner freedom, this joy of the kingdom, this peace of the kingdom that is invincible, that no one and no thing in this world, no hardship could take away from him, that he's being fed and nourished upon the grace of God so deeply that whatever he would encounter in this life, he would never lose that joy. And I think a lot of the times we, uh, as Christians, have trouble embracing the teachings of the gospel because we've never tasted that truth for ourselves of what it is to truly abandon ourselves to the will of God in this life, to trust in his providence, to respond to his specific call, to let go of our hold on the things of this world, to provide meaning and identity for us, and to hold on to Christ alone, and to allow that relationship to shape everything for us. And when we hold back, we, we never come to experience that in its fullness. And if we never taste it, we never begin to have the deeper desire for it in our lives that would draw us along the path of, of holiness and transformation, or, we would, or that would bring us to the fullness that Francis experienced in his life. 
And so this is the, the, the first of the temptations that we talked about last time and the first of the evangelical councils, poverty and poverty of spirit. So not only poverty in terms of material goods, but poverty in the sense of letting go of our own private judgment, of holding on to what we think we need in this world to provide identity and fullness for ourselves, and clinging and nourishing ourselves upon the word that has been given to us. Again, not only as teaching, but as food and drink itself to nourish us unto everlasting life. And so our path is not simply that of the monks, but to discipline ourselves, to embrace the life of asceticism where we are nourishing ourselves upon that word, where we are seeking to feed ourselves upon the grace of God through the life of prayer, through studying the scriptures, through reading the fathers, of doing all these things where we are seeking our identity in that and we gradually lose that, that desperate pull, that desperate attachment to the things of this world and allow that attachment to God to begin to grow. That's where true freedom begins to emerge for us. Uh, I mentioned last time that it's often been said that a starving man has no sense of taste. He will eat anything that's put down before him. And so often that's the case for us in this world. We are, have been so deprived, there have been a couple generations now of Christian men and women who have not heard the gospel, who have not been catechized, who have not been exposed to the richness of this spiritual tradition. So much so that uh, a very large number of Christians don't believe in the real presence of Christ within the Holy Eucharist. And so something, however, has to fill that void. If we are made for God, if we're made in his image and likeness, then God is going to be the only one who can fill that place within us. He's only going to be the one who can satisfy that desire within us. And if you remember, uh, the word desire comes from sense of lack, sense of incompleteness. So it's only in our turning to God that we experience the, the fullness that we are meant to have as those who have been created in his image and likeness. It's only then that we see the beauty of that relationship, but also the destiny that he's made possible for us in his only begotten son. And uh, if we do not nourish ourselves upon us, we are going to be like that starving man. Anything that is set before us, we are going to consume desperately seeking that fullness. And think about it for a moment. Uh, in our culture, especially here in the West, it's not only food, but it's every material thing that we come across that is new, any new form of technology, we will immediately move to consume it. We've made ourselves consumers uh, of everything around us, but rooted in this desperate void that we experience, again, that God can only fill. And so it might make us for a moment feel like we have found something to give us meaning or identity, but eventually it will falter. If our true identity is only found in God, then anything that we turn to is eventually going to be revealed as lacking, as not being, not being capable of filling that and satisfying that desire.
And so we are called by God, like Christ, don't heed the temptation to take hold of these things as if by magic they could satisfy what only God can satisfy. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by technology alone or by material goods. It's only by what comes to us from the hand of God. And we can treat so many things in our life in a consumerist fashion, even other people. And we can move from relationship to relationship, seeking what this person can offer us on an emotional level. And we can feed ourselves on it and use them to satisfy ourselves emotionally until it's, it no longer has that sweetness for us, no longer fills that void for us, and then we set them aside. That's the nature of our culture now. It's called hooking up in the university culture, moving from individual to individual simply to satisfy this emotional or physical need, even if you have no knowledge of that person or have only met them in that moment. So following this, and this is what we come to this evening, is the second of these evangelical councils, chastity. And this is so often misunderstood because I think we think about it in our mind as virginity or as not engaging in sexual activity or remaining, uh, remaining pure physically in, in this sense. But the meaning of chastity is far greater. And this is why it is meant to, for not only those who embrace monastic vows or the celibate life, but it's meant for married couples. It's meant for every Christian man and woman. Because in reality, what it is is purity of, of heart. The, the fathers had a word for this. Uh, uh, in terms of what is being spoken of here, uh, we often will define it as intellect, uh, which we think immediately when we hear that word as reason, understanding. But it's really the word noose, which is eye of the heart, eye of the soul. And it is this that is to be purified through the ascetic life, through prayer, through the study of scriptures, through the sacramental life, in order that we might see clearly that there would be no impediment for our seeing the truth about ourselves, about creation, and about God and our relationship with him. So one who is purity, has pure of heart is going to be able to discern not only the path that God wants them to walk in this life, but they're going to be able to discern the truth about their own sin, where they need to struggle the most, but they are also going to be able to discern how they are to love and give themselves in love to others. They're going to be able to see the deeper identity of the person that's standing before them, not to be used as an object, not to be used as a consumer, but a human being who's created in the image and likeness of God, who is, again, a distinct identity that is only meant to be loved. And our problem is, is that we lose sight of the sacredness of creation altogether. We, when we enter into sin, this eye of the soul becomes darkened. 
and we, we find ourselves then losing our way and losing sight of the beauty of, of God's creation, how he created it and how he meant it to be used, but also then how we are to live our lives as well. And so look at the temptation that comes to Christ within the second temptation. He's taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and he's told, fling yourself down. Take this humanity that you've embraced and all of its poverty, throw yourself down almost as in a magic act while the crowds get their attention in this way, but don't embrace this humanity in all of its poverty in the way that you have. And so if he cannot get him to change the stones into bread, to feed himself, to get rid of that poverty, that hunger of being a human being, then he, he tells him, cast it off altogether. Reveal your true identity to everyone here. Treat the, the humanity that you've embraced as if it is of no worth. Fling yourself down here. We are told in the scriptures that the angels will come and protect you lest you dash your foot against the stone. And so go ahead and do it. And the Lord's respond to this is thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You should not put God to the test. You shall not question his wisdom and providence in creating things as they are, or to use them in ways that God does not attend, intend, in ways that will lead you not to joy, not to freedom, not into love, but will lead you into a kind of bondage, into greater darkness and into greater unhappiness. And so you begin to see why it's important for us to understand chastity as not simply meaning sexual purity. The chastity is really purity of heart that then affects the way that we see everything in God's creation. And so we are tempted by the evil one in our life to do exactly what he wants our Lord to do, to make use of God to make use of him in order to satisfy all of our own desires. So we'll make use of the things that God has given us, but in the way that we understand is best, or in the way that we think is best. What our emotions tell us, what our reason and our understanding tell us, rather than what has been revealed to us by natural law and what has been revealed to us through the, the law of Moses and what has been revealed to us through Christ himself about our true dignity and identity. And so what we find when this takes place is our not only misusing of ourselves and our body, so falling into unchastity in regards to our relationships with other people. We'll use them and ourselves as objects. And this is certainly a part of it, and it's certainly problematic. It's, again, a putting ourselves into a kind of bondage. I think last time we mentioned the, the prevailing use of pornography and that by the age of eight, young boys and young women are exposed to pornography on the internet. And so already what is filling their minds and their imagination is this certain view of creation, a distorted image of it. 
And it's so deeply lodged in the imagination and the memory that it's hard to free oneself from that once it's taken root. And so as they age, then not only what they've seen on the computer uh, affects them, but they begin to act upon that as well. The way that they view other people, the way that they view themselves. Again, objectifying themselves, using themselves as a consumer would use goods within this world, simply to satisfy the baser needs. But when we lack chastity, when we lack this vision of creation itself, and wisdom of how God has created it and in truth created it, then we will begin to approach creation in the very same way. We'll distort it and use it in ways that God never intends. So, you know, the big catchword in our days, you know, that we are destroying the earth and that we need to go green. We need to protect Mother Earth, as it were. Well, there is some truth to that. I mean, this wasn't just made up in recent times. This is part of the Christian identity and vision of the world around us. We're made stewards of creation itself, and we are to use it, to, but to use it in the way that God intended it, and not to, to simply abuse it, which we have over the course of generations and still are. Or we can use things like our own intellect and curiosity to invent things without questioning ourselves whether or not we should invent them and whether or not they would be used for the good. And so in medicine, for example, we'll use something which is meant to do no harm and to bring healing to, for example, perform abortions or to euthanize someone. Or uh, with all the discussion about gender identity now, this emerges out of a culture that is confused about identity. And so this is something that our children are being indoctrinated in. And when they're indoctrinated in it and begin to question their identity as God has created them, then they're even being led to engage in surgery, to change their, their identity, if, if you will, as if that were, were possible. And so it's a kind of abuse of children through something that God has created and given to us for healing in our life. So again, you see chastity, purity of heart, has more to do, again, with what we've often made it in, in people's minds. If we're simply telling the youth of our day, be chaste, and that means don't masturbate, don't look at pornography, don't have sex out of marriage. Well, that's a very truncated view of it, but it's also a wrong view of it. And because in marriage, it's not as though marriage itself is suddenly licensed to do whatever you want and follow wherever, whatever, whatever fantasy that has formed and shaped your mind or has been distorted by the use of pornography throughout the rest of your life. The men and women who are married are called to be chaste, pure of heart as every other Christian. You know, monks and nuns make up this minuscule number of people throughout the world. The majority of people embrace the, the natural vocation that has become supernatural in Christ. That it becomes something that makes present Christ, the heavenly bridegroom's love for his bride, the church. 
And so when a man and woman vow themselves, they bind themselves together, Christ says there are no longer two, but there are one. And you can only become one when you do not see the other as an object, but you're willing to make this self-donation, this complete self gift of the self to the other. That in love you give yourself to them as Christ gives himself to us in the Eucharist, to the point that the two are no longer two but one. And that only arises and is only capable from those who are pure of heart and give themselves to that and, and give themselves to that to each other in that fashion. So not every marriage is rooted in this chaste love. In fact, many marriages aren't, and it's for this reason that many marriages do not persevere. If you've not given yourself over to the other fully, without holding anything back, that you make yourself absolutely vulnerable to the other, and you protect the other in their vulnerability and embrace, embrace fully what they offer you, that's what allows that relationship to endure because it's conformed to Christ and it becomes a source of grace for the couple. If a couple simply enters into that relationship and is drawn simply along by the desire to satisfy their own needs, the relationship is not going to persevere. It's not even desire that is guiding it at times, and it's not even romance, because romance naturally gives itself over to commitment. One is attracted to another person on a level of sensuality and, and sensibility. So physically, but also emotionally, attracted to another individual, that relationship grows and develops over time. When they share that same faith, then that bond can grow and develop to the point that they want to make this lifelong commitment that then becomes a source of grace for them. In our day and age, at times it's not, it doesn't even reach the level of romance where there's this possibility of it becoming something beautiful. It's more like infatuation. I'm infatuated with that other person because of what they give me or how they make me feel. Well, that's not going, to last very long. I often ask couples that I'm preparing for marriage, what makes you think that you're going to be different from the other 70% of people that get divorced? Is it going to be your bright and shining personalities, you know, that you're, you're so beautiful and attractive to each other that you're not going to face the same challenges of all the others that end up in divorce? And Christians are keeping pace with everybody else within the culture in that regard. Infatuation is an interesting idea, and I just want to pause here because I think it touches on what we're talking about here. Uh, its root is in the word infatuous, false life, light, false light. And it emerges out of an experience in the desert. If a person was lost in the desert at nighttime, you're in a world of hurt. And especially if you did not have the light of the sky to guide you. If it was overcast, you were in complete darkness. But every once in a while, they would see a light out in the, in the distance. And they would think that that was an encampment. It's a fire. And so they began to make that movement towards what promises warmth, what promises comfort, and security. But it turns out that that light out in the desert is an optical illusion. 
that the light is refracted in such a way that it makes them think that they are seeing a fire off in the distance. So they can be spending all this time pursuing something that seems to hold out this promise, again, of light, of comfort, of security, when in reality, there's nothing there. And so if we engage in life and in relationships, uh, and we are driven by this kind of attitude, infatuation, then we are never going to come to experience the fullness of life, of light and joy that we would want to experience, not only in our relationship with others, but in our relationship with God. We can do the very same thing in our relationship with God as we do with others, where we are infatuated, if you will, with the idea of being religious. I mean, how, how many young men have I known over the, over the years have said, I want to be a priest, because on a certain level, the idea of becoming a priest seems like a wonderful thing, but in reality, living it, preparing the mind and the heart to live it fully is a much different thing. Same thing with marriage, that you know, people will pursue it, not thinking about what it is the church really believes and how it is that we are to live our lives in light of this kind of love, this chaste love. I could count on two hands the, the people I've married over 30 years that I feel really un got it, that they really understood this. The rest of the time I felt like I was window dressing like I was a justice of the peace. I was the last person contacted after the hall was reserved and after the gown was bought and the tuxedos rented and all the other decisions made. And, uh, but more often than not, uh, there was no sense of the third party being involved in that relationship who is the guarantor of that relationship, Christ. He becomes an afterthought. And so the real crisis within the church is not with priests in the priesthood. The real crisis in the church is marriage, marriage and family. And if you look at the writings of the saints, especially the modern elders, they, they say what's going to be attacked the most within the church in our day is the family and marriage. And they're right. If you want to undermine the faith, Undermining the priesthood was easy enough. We, we, we did the work for the evil one. Uh, under, undermining ma marriage and family, you know, that has a natural beauty to it, uh, is much harder because of the grace of God. But we've moved so far away from that reality that we no longer embrace it in this way. And so, uh, this is what comes to us again from the Eastern Fathers, this view of what it is to be a human being, to embrace our full dignity, not allowing ourselves to be tempted away uh, from what God has revealed to us, not only about himself, but who we are as human beings and how we are to live in this world now. And so this is the true meaning of chastity. If we make it and I think this is why we failed so, so terribly, I think, in the education of the youth, because they know what's coming, they know what we're going to say. We're, we're taking this very narrow vision of formation, 
where we, we, what we have to do is open up the full beauty of the faith, both for the adults and for children at a very early age. They're more capable than we, than we understand in terms of absorbing these realities and perceiving the truth of them and perceiving the truth about God and the presence of God. And we, you know, we, you know, infantilize everyone in the way that we teach by dumbing it down. When in reality, we need to be going back to the resources, as the council has told us, in order that we might nourish and nurture ourselves upon them and regain what is ours, which is this very high view of what it is to be a human being. It's interesting, if you were to ask, uh, uh, the typical secularist in culture or, or an atheist about a Christian's understanding of sexuality or what it is to be a human being, they, they would rip it to shreds. They would tell you, oh, they have, the, you know, they have this, such this narrow and negative view of what it is to be a person. They're filled with shame and anxiety. They, they look at sex as if it's something bad. And the exact opposite is true. We have this extreme, extraordinarily elevated view of what it is to be a human being and where true freedom comes from. And that is what we have to not only regain, but begin to teach again. And teach most of all by the way that we live our lives. Any thoughts or comments before we take a little break here? Okay, won't we pause then for a moment and we'll come back to the, the final council. Please come over, we have some uh, bread, cheese, all of Okay, folks, why don't we go ahead and pick it up. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, our final section is on the, the, the third evangelical council of obedience. And again, this is something that we tend to have a very narrow understanding of, or again, see it as something that's limited to the religious life, to those who take vows, rather than something that is to shape our spiritual lives as well, primarily because we want to live in conformity to Christ. We want to put on Christ and put on his mind. And we know that uh, it is love that drove his obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of becoming a slave, a servant, and then to the cross itself. And we also know the fruit of that obedience, which is our redemption. And so, again, this is something that is to shape our very identity uh, from the moment that we woke, wake in the morning to the moment that we go to sleep. And obedience, you could see the title on your handout is Obedience to God, Receptivity to the Spirit of Truth and the Creative Freedom of Grace. And so right there in the title and what we receive from Evdekimov is that obedience is not something that enslaves us and makes us subject in a negative way to another's will in sort of a disconnected way or in a whimsical way, uh, that we are giving up 
our individuality or our identity by embracing a life of obedience that it's something slavish, I think is often how it's looked at. But here, Abdekimov is telling us that this is really a radical openness to the spirit of truth, that our obedience is our willingness to listen to God and allow him to draw us along the path that he desires for us. And the key for us, again, is in the word obedience itself. Ab adore means to, to hear or to listen. And so fundamentally, our obedience as Christian men and women is that through our ascetic life, through the life of prayer, of fostering internal stillness and silence, we are able to listen to the word of God as he speaks to us and as he makes his will known to us. And it's been said by many of, of the fathers that the language of God is silence. And so as Christian men and women in and through our prayer, there has to be a willingness to enter into that silence, to still the mind and the heart and to let go of the restrictions of our own reason, our own understanding, our own imagination. That in our, for example, for in our, in our spiritual life and through our meditation, we can study the scriptures, we can meditate upon certain events from the life of Christ, and this can stoke within us the fires of devotion and piety and draw us closer to Christ, create a desire for him in our lives, deepen our commitment. All of that is very good, but uh, we can reach a point where reason, imagination, understanding all fail us because they are finite. And what we are drawn to is to uh, an intimate relationship with God himself, to experience God as he is in himself. So not just as we conceptualize God in our minds, and that might be perfect. We might know the faith inside and outside. We might be able to articulate the faith perfectly. We might know a lot about Christ, know a lot about scriptures, but that does not know that we know Christ in the truest sense of the word, in, in the sense of experiencing him and experiencing the reality of who Christ is and who God is to us. And so when we look east and west in the great spiritual writers, they all tell us of this limitation that we have as human beings. And to be able to listen to God, we have to enter into that silence. And so let go of the things that have served us well, perhaps for decades of our life, uh, in drawing us along the path of faith. And to do that not in a negative kind of way, but again, understanding their limitations and allow ourselves to be drawn along into that silence and into the darkness of faith. Faith is a kind of knowing. St. John of the Cross, for example, describes it as a dark, obscure knowing. Dark and obscure, but still a knowing, a comprehension. And so faith is the gift that God has given us, one of the theological virtues that allows us to, to know him. And again, know him as he is in himself, fully, to be drawn into that relationship. And it can be a very difficult thing for us to do because we like security, we like boundaries, we like to know where we're headed. 
And so to enter into prayer in this way, or to allow God to guide and direct us in a way that's in accord with his mind, his will, his wisdom, can be very difficult for us to do, especially if those two things are at odds. If God calls us to take up a particular cross in our life, or draws us into the Byzantine Rite, or puts us in this parish out in Duquesne for as your first experience, which has been great, by the way, but I shouldn't say that. But uh, <laughs> not knowing how to chant, I had to learn, the, I was talking to a couple of the fellows here before the, this last part, that I had to learn the divine liturgy in a month's time. And so it was like a crash course and I was thrown in. And one day the priest who was teaching me said to me, okay, we're, we're going to do a run through here. It's just you and me and Cantor. And he said, uh, you're, you're, you're the celebrant. I'm not going to help you. You aren't allowed to stop and you aren't allowed to look at the rubrics. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm being thrown into the deep end mercilessly. And, and, and all the while he sits back and takes notes of the things that I've, I've done wrong. And uh, so at that point I began to question, okay God, what, what are you doing here with me? Uh, but it turned out to be a beautiful thing. But this is the kind of act of faith, of stepping out in at times to the unknown and allowing God to draw us along a path with which we are not familiar or that perhaps seems frightening to us or that does involve a distinctive cross. And so a dark, obscure knowing, but it also allows us to hear this word of God. The silence does. And I mentioned this, I think, a little bit in a previous session, that a Carthusian writer said that silence allows God to speak a word to us that is equal to himself. So when we let go of the boundaries of intellect, reason, imagination, and we allow ourselves simply to walk in faith, which again is what God has given us. It's this gift from God that allows us to comprehend what he reveals to us. It allows us to hear a word that he desires us to hear. And you can begin to understand why this is so important for all of us as Christians, for the priest who's preparing to preach, that he has to have this obedient soul, that he's not just preaching himself, he's not preaching his own ideas, he's not creating something new and that people you know, will respond to well. His responsibility is to listen, to be obedient, to allow himself to hear what God is speaking to the depth of his heart in order that he might speak to the depth of the religiosity of all those in the pew, to speak the word that God desires those in the pew to hear, to under, hear and understand. And so obedience, again, has to permeate our, our very existence. And similarly, I think in our, our day-to-day day -day life, in the relationship such as marriage, that to, to be able to listen again to God, but also what God is saying to us in and through the relationship that we are engaged in, that we are able to see the other person, but also to, to hear, if you will, the particular needs, where there is suffering, where there is loneliness, isolation, 
where there is hopelessness or anxiety, that we would be attentive to that as God makes it manifest to it, and we would be obedient to it. We would do what God desires us to do in that moment. And it's by listening on this level that we are brought to a true freedom in our life. Otherwise, we are walking in darkness. If we are judging things, other people, the crosses that come to us in our life, the hardships we experience, our emotions, our intellect and reason are all, all going to revulse at it. And we see it in the gospel. When Christ starts talking about the cross, Peter jumps in front of him and says, you know, God forbid that it will ever happen. I'll never let it happen. And our Lord has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You've become a stumbling block to me, an obstacle to me. Or when Christ teaches about the Holy Eucharist, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you, for my, my flesh is true food and my blood is real drink. And half of his disciples, half of his company at, at, at that point depart. Who could accept this? They murmur in protest. They're the first Protestants, if you will. They murmur in protest against uh, what, about what Jesus is saying. That who could accept something like this? That w someone would say that he's going to give us his flesh and blood to eat and drink and that this is necessary for, for eternal life. It's only a heart of faith but also a heart that's been formed and shaped by obedience that is able to hear this, but also embrace the truth of it. And we see the temptation that comes to our, our Lord here again. And again, this is where Evdokimov is beautiful in his writing, that he helps us to view these counsels through what Christ himself goes through. So we don't disconnect or abstract these counsels from Christ himself and his own life. He's the model for us. He's the icon of these counsels for us. And so the temptation is, you know, take for yourself all all the riches of the nations, seize for yourself, all of them, by divine right. I'll, I'll give them to you so long as you bow down and, and worship me. So the temptation there is to let go of that right order, to move not in an ascending path through obedience toward God, but to take the path of Lucifer himself, to place one's own will and judgment above that of God. And Luther's movement is downward. And this is exactly what he wants for us. It's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve, and it's what he wanted to happen to our Lord. And the Lord responds, thou shalt adore the Lord thy God, and him alone only shall you worship that it's only by directing our worship, our adoration, our love, our obedience in a rightly ordered way toward God that we come to know freedom as the sons and daughters of God. Only God can guide and direct us and give us the light, the wisdom that we need in order to come to know the fullness of life that he's made possible for us in his only begotten son. And that might not fit in at all with the path that we imagine for ourselves when we become Christian. 
We might think of it as, again, bringing us a kind of peace, interior calm, that it gives us strength in the hardships of day-to-day -day life. It helps us to endure. Faith might give us all those things and help us with all those things, but none of that is promised to us in this world. What's promised to us is the hatred of the world, persecution, that we will experience everything that Christ experienced. They will hate you as they've hated me. And we are told, or Peter is told, that when you were young, you walked where you wanted to walk. But when you are older, you will be bound, and another will take you where you do not want to go. That he is bound, in a sense, by obedience, obedience to his love and fidelity to Christ and to the truth. He's bound by that and to allow that to guide him all the way to the cross itself. And this is what we see in all the saints and martyrs, this willingness to set aside will, a private judgment, not in a slavish way, but because they are being driven along by desire, by love of God and trust in his, in his providence and hope in his promises where they can no longer see the truth, even where faith fails, they can no longer see the path ahead of them. It is hope that allows them to endure on that path. This is why the scriptures tell us, make sure your endurance carries you all the way to the end, because it's only going to be hope at times that allows us to keep moving forward when we're going through hell in our life. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I think we fail at, again, is in teaching this and communicating it, that we often treat obedience, again, as something that is oppressive. It has that negative connotation about whenever people hear the word obedience, they think that they're going to be bossed around by somebody, that Father Val is going to say, you go do this, you go do that that it's going to somehow make us doormats uh, before others and their treatment of us. But the, the, the reality is, is that a person who has no will, no identity, does not even have the capacity to be obedient. If, if obedience is this capacity to listen, to hear God, then one has to be very clear about one's identity and the source of that identity. And so obedient, to be obedient is always to have one's ear out listening to what God is saying to us. If you're simply uh, weak, if you have no identity, you don't want to take responsibility for anything in your life, that's not being obedient by having somebody tell you what to do every moment of your life. That means simply that you have not been formed or shaped in your life, nor are we Marines where they seek to break a person's will so that they can become fighting machines and not fear anything. Our path is, is much different. Again, it is rooted in a relationship. It's relational. We res are responding to this call to freedom. And it takes trust in that love then to make that ascent, to move forward, to make that ascent toward God, knowing that he's ultimately guiding us to the fullness of life. The way that we teach it is often faulty. 
And I, I think this is the problem. Uh, even in seminaries, again, no offense, Father Val back there, <laughs> but it can be done in an infantilizing fashion. Rather than engaging, for example, young men coming in this, in the seminary. They all have different backgrounds. They might be different ages. They might have different maturity levels emotionally, but different maturity levels spiritually as well. Well, uh, a true f person uh, in formation, an elder, a spiritual director, is not going to seek to make them mini-me's, to, to have them do what you do and act in the way that you act. What you want them to develop is this capacity of what we are talking about here, to listen to Christ, to engage in all of those things that form and shape the mind and the heart, that they might mature emotionally and spiritually so that they can make that full gift of themselves to God, as well as make that full gift of themselves to the church to serve as a priest. And so if we simply use obedience as a way of infantilizing individuals, they're not going to make good priests and they're not going to make, be good spouses either. You know, sometimes that phrase from Paul in Ephesians, people get bent out of shape about that, that, you know, wives be submissive to your husbands. And certainly many husbands over the course of, of the years have used that to, as a way of oppressing of holding a person in submission, of infantilizing, where it's meant to be a mutual obedience, of a giving of self over to the other, in conform again, in conformity to Christ. The husband is supposed to be obedient to his wife in the way that Christ is obedient to the church and gives himself over to her. And, and the wife is supposed to respond as the church responds to Christ. But if we turn it into something infantilizing, it's going to become something ugly. I'll give you a little example <clears throat> in a religious community. This will happen too, this kind of infantilizing sense of obedience, that uh, the idea of making everybody the same. And I was once told a story by a religious sister that there was a novice mistress that was very strict and sort of took this approach, heavy-handed approach with all of them. And they had to do, follow all the rules exactly, do all the things exactly the same. And when it came time to take a, even a picture of the novice class, she had boxes made at varying heights so that they would all be the same height in the picture. <laughs> that there would be no variance there, nothing that would distinguish them individually one from another. So obedience was seen at times as a loss of identity. Why do we think that so many fled the religious communities after the Second Vatican Council? Why the habits were thrown off and why they left their communities and went and got married? You know, part of that was cultural, both what was going on within the life of the church, but also society. But it also it sort of shows us that there was a problem there in the church's understanding of what real formation was about, that we did need to go back to the sources to understand our very identity and how we are to be conformed and shaped into Christ in our life. And it certainly isn't every, having everybody stand on 
uh, box so that they're the same height, and it's certainly not infantilizing them so that they can't make a decision on their own for the rest of their life. I've, I've visited some communities where it's obvious that they have been stunted in their maturity level, that they talk like little girls, you know, and they're in their 40, they've, they've been in the religious community for 40 years, and they talk like they're t teenagers. They have a deep and rich spirituality, and I don't want to take away from the nature of their commitment, but part of that formation was deforming. It prevented the development of them as human beings to the full extent that God desires for us. And if we lose that, we lose the capacity, I think, to engage the generation uh, in our times that each age needs a kind of holy genius. And so if you make obedience simply following the rules and you're not really forming and shaping hearts to listen to God, you're not going to have individuals emerge within the church, married couples or priests or religious, who are listening to God and what he's saying about how they are to live their life in this time in a way that he sees fit and what is needed for our generation to enliven our world uh, to the wisdom and the truth of the gospel. So obedience, again, is not something that's limited to the religious or to those who are vowed. It's part and parcel of our being Christians, of being human beings who have been redeemed and drawn into the very life of God, a God who has made himself known to us perfectly and wants to draw us into the fullness of the truth of eternal life and love. This is what obedience is. It, we should see it as something that lifts us up and elevates us and draws us more and more deeply into the truth rather than something that limits our freedom. And so all of Christ's teachings are along this level, beckoning people to, to walk this path of love, of mercy, of forgiveness, of self-sacrifice on behalf of others. And uh, again, to be guided along a path that might be very difficult for them to see and that might not fit in with their own, pri again, private judgment. When Peter is asked, are you going to leave me too? When our Lord teaches about the Eucharist, Peter says to him, where, where are we to go? You have the words of everlasting life. That kind of fidelity and obedience arises out of love of a relationship of love that he had with Christ, that he could trust in the word of the Lord about what he was going to make himself for them, that he could make an assent to it, even though on an intellectual level, he didn't understand any better than all the rest who left, that he was able to say, yes, Lord, you know, I, I will make this ascent and, and follow you, trusting that the Lord would make, make it known to him. And in our day-to-day -day life, we're going to encounter that over and over again, where we are called to make that ascent, to listen to God, guide us, 
and say, yes, even though we don't fully understand where he's guiding us and directing us at the moment. And so to, to live without obedience is to walk in the dark. And it is to, to follow the meager light of our own reason. And that's not going to take us very far in the, in the spiritual life. In fact, it will take us nowhere. And in light of what we've been promised, which is everything, to be drawn into eternal life and love, it should create a kind of willingness, an urgency within our heart to embrace what Christ and Christ alone offers to us. And so in terms of our formation, whether it's in seminary or in catechism classes or in the home, we, we need to reshape things in light first of Christ, what we see in him. Again, he's the, the living icon for us of God himself. We see in him the fullness of our God. And so to keep our gaze fixed upon, upon him and also what he's revealed to us, what he's taught to us. And from there, our formation you know, of ourselves and then others emerges. It's been interesting, we've been reading as a group online a work called The Evergatinos, and it's very much like the Philokalia, and was written actually in the year 1000, so almost, it was compiled in the year 1000, so about seven or 800 years before the Philokalia was put together. And it's beautiful, it's in four volumes, each with 50 hypotheses about various aspects of the spiritual life. And we're still in the first volume after two years, but we've been reading about obedience recently. And it's been interesting there because you sort of anticipate what these authors are going to say and what these monks are going to demand you know, of their disciples. And it's surprising, they, they flip it around on you. All of a sudden, we begin to see that the obedience of a disciple even to uh, an elder who's not faithful or obedient himself is transformative. And that the ones who are true elders lead not by words or by making demands, but by their person, personal example. You want to know what obedience is? Look at my silence. Look at how I live my day-to-day -day life. Look at how I pray. So they are to be true, the truest guides, probably say the least. And they focus on themselves and how they're living, trusting that that is sufficient and that even the silence can instruct. We were reading uh, St. Pacomius uh, from his life. Uh, he was the first to write a role for uh, Cenobitic monasteries, so larger communities that would live under an abbot. So there would be anchorites who would live on their own in solitude. There would be those who would live in skeets. So they would have an elder, maybe four or five men would live together. And then Snobiums, these larger monasteries that would develop. Pacomius writes the full first rule, but he's also known as being this incredibly holy soul. And we hear these two stories, uh, and this was last night. And the first is that there's this guy who's not even 20 years old, a uh, very humble novice and a very obedient novice. And he says to him, Theodore, I want you to get up and preach before all the community. And Theodore gets up and he preaches with great wisdom 
before all the monks. But some of the elder monks who had been there for decades of their life had embraced the role and the ascetic life get upset. Who's this young upstart to get up and preach before us? And a bunch of them get up and leave. And Pacomius goes to cauterize the wound of pride. And he says, I asked Theodore to rise because I wanted to be inspired by what he would say. And I found that as I was listening to him, I did not know my left hand from my right hand because he spoke with such beauty. And this you lost because of your pride. You were not able to be guided by the Spirit. In fact, you cut yourself off from God in your pride when you got up and left that room because you were not willing to receive it through an instrument that was too humble in your eyes, too lowly in your eyes. And so he cauterizes the, the wound of pride for the entire community in saying this. But then the story that follows immediately after that is Pacomius uh, making mats. It's one of the work that they would do. They would make mats out of palm branches and then take them to the city to sell for food. And so here he is, he's superior to the community, he's this holy soul, and he's making his mat one day, and a little boy comes up and he says, Master, you're doing it all wrong. Theodore and all the other monks make the mats in a different way. And at that moment, he doesn't say, you know, get away from here, you little brat. You know, I've been making these mats for, for ages. He says, well, you know, my, my, my son, you know, why don't you, why don't you sh show me how to do it? And so he has this little boy show him how the other monks make these mats out of palm branches. And so his, his obedience, his humility is made manifest in his willingness to receive the word of God that often comes to us from unexpected sources. So our obedience, in other words, is not only to be directed towards those who have offices above us, who are our superiors. Of course, that's true. They've been put in this role for a particular reason, but our obedience is to extend, as it were, to everyone that we encounter that we would, again, have that listening ear to what God might be communicating to us through them. And I'll just stop with one final story. It's from last night as well, from the life of St. Ephraim the Syrian. The Syriac writers are magnificent, so if you haven't had an opportunity to read them, Ephraim, Isaac the Syrian, the best. But this is from the life of Ephraim, and he gets it into his mind that he wants to go to the city of Edessa. He's going to make a pilgrimage there to venerate the, the, the relics of the great saints there, but also going there with the hope of encountering an elder that would speak a word to him that would give him the guidance that he needs in his life to help him figure out what path he was to take moving forward. And so he makes this pilgrimage to Edessa. He enters into the city and he finds himself standing there looking around and somewhat after a while gets disappointed because he sees no holy looking soul or elder there. But across the way, he catches sight of a prostitute standing there. And so he begins to stare at her and he begins to stare at her with the idea that he will shame her for her way of life, that he'll look at her and she'll acknowledge 
you know, her, way, her, uh, her waywardness and turn, turn back to God. But suddenly this prostitute begins to look back at Ephraim and stare at him to the point that he gets uncomfortable too. And so he asks her, he says, you know, why are you staring at, at me like that in such a way, given the, the kind of life that you lead? And she said, well, you know, I should look at you because I came from your rib, referring back to Adam and Eve. But you, you should, you should be looking at the ground rather than gazing at me and judging me. So Ephraim comes into the city and his gaze at her is unholy. Not that he was lusting after her, but rather he lacked humility. His first thought about this woman was that she was lowly and that he was going to shame her into changing her life. And she's the one who actually corrects him. That if you're, she says, if you want to be a monk, go to the mountains, she tells him. You know, rather than stand here in the city gawking at me and gawking at me with pride. And so immediately he understands uh, this is the one that God sent me to hear. Of all people, a prostitute who reveals to me the pride that w w is within my heart. And that's what I need to overcome. That's the path that I need to take is humility. And if we lack obedience, if we don't have that capacity to hear, to listen, we are, are not going to hear God in so many different circumstances of our life. And often it is in these simple, humble circumstances of our day-to-day -day life where we stumble or we make a mistake, <clears throat> where there's this opportunity for us to be humbled. And more often than not, we cling <clears throat> to our own way of viewing something. We move to the defensive position. We become harsh with others rather than receiving what God would communicate to us at that moment, just as he communicated to Ephraim through this woman. So again, I hope this helps to reshape the way that we look at the evangelical councils, that these are the things that we are to be fostering in our day-to-day -day life, not simply because they are good, they're evangelical councils because they come to us from the gospel, and more importantly, they come to us from Christ. This is what we see in him, in perfection. And this is why Evdekimov uses the three temptations in the desert. Christ manifests each of these virtues in his response to the evil one. And this is what needs to shape our spiritual life as well, our ascetical life. Thank you very much. Before we finish, do we have any questions? Or comments. Yes. Um, the obedience one can be hard to talk to people about. Mm -hmm. They are poorly formed, in my experience, because I think, especially with a lot of, say, lapsed Catholics that you might have in family or friends, mm -hmm. they. Uh, they feel like they're just following their conscience is what they're supposed to do, and the, the, what the church teaches is just rules. It's somehow separate from right. the word of God or, or mm -hmm. God's desire. Right. How would you 
suggest we reach out to people in a way that they might actually listen, or is it another case where we have to lead by example? I think it's lead by example is the first thing that I would say. And, and we use that phrase so frequently, lead by example. I think it has to be becoming this without it being even, without our being even overly conscious of it. We have to be so immersed in it that we are transformed by the grace of God, that we become Christ for others. That we be, if the gospels were lost, that people seeing us should be able to, to know the truth of them. And so our formation has to be such that the grace of Christ has so shaped and formed us that our very silence would speak even to individuals. Our demeanor, our countenance, how we engage in our work, how we engage others, that always speaks uh, to people in a far deeper way than our words. There are times when we take those opportune moments uh, to clarify things for people, especially as you said, if they have this view of what the church teaches. Uh, and we might hold forward uh, uh, a word for them, clarify one point and be at peace with that, that we might be one part of the puzzle or one part of that movement towards the truth. We might never see the fruit of what we said to that individual or what we did for them if it was something that we acted upon, we loved them in a certain way. We might never see what happened to them or the impact of that. But nonetheless, we can be sure that it plants a seed of that divine love. And something as small as a mustard seed produces this huge bush, we're told in the gospel, or even a, the smallest amount of faith can move mountains. And so if we engage others with faith, and faith not in ourselves, in our own words, or our capacity to speak about the faith and be convincing, but rather with the faith that means this knowledge of Christ, experience of him in reality, that is going to be the most provocative thing for others. And this is what the, the fathers understood, that this, you know, we've turned Christianity into this kind of activism. You know, let's have programs, let's have groups, you know, we'll have classes on this. Whereas for them, the active life was about transforming their hearts, struggling with their own passions, growing in virtues in order that they might live the life. The, you know, the Christian community was called the way in the beginning. You know, see how they love each other. This was the thing that was most provocative. You know, how they engaged each other, how they took care of each other, shared possessions with each other, and even what they were willing to suffer for Christ. This is what's going to speak to individuals. So what we need are saints those who embrace this and live it fully, not up here in a notional way, abstracted from that relationship with Christ, but with our, our whole, whole selves. And so when I talk about, for, was talking about formation, you know, I think most of what we do, you know, with children and catechism, or even seminaries needs to be thrown out the window. And we, we need to focus more on this return to the tradition, scripture, to Christ himself, to the scriptures, to the fathers, and focus upon this internal formation of mind and heart of living that reality. I mean, look at the Gospels. 
the teachings of Christ, these simple parables, homey stories that, were, that people understood from their day-to-day -day life. But it was the one who was speaking it to, to them, you know, that they have had love incarnate communicating with them, you know, or forgiving them, or lifting the woman caught in adultery up off the ground, you know, able to speak with this simple clarity, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, it's, it's this individual that spoke to the minds and the hearts of others that changed the world. And I think our tendency to over-intellectualize, again, is a kind of defense mechanism from allowing ourselves to be drawn into that too deeply because we fear that level of transformation. What will my life become if I live for Christ alone? Whereas if we can turn it into you know, th theology, or that we get a degree. You know, MDiv that the seminarians get, the reason behind that is because we wanted to sort of fit in with the crowd, you know, the MDs, the doctors of the world, which makes no sense from a Christian perspective. We shouldn't be gr granting a degree at all. It's about the formation of mind and heart. Now, I busted my back in seminary, you know, to get the, the grades. But what I learned in seminary, in terms of my acting as a priest over this years, served me about this much. It's, it was re reading the fathers and talking to people, the experience within the confessionals, the experience before the Blessed Sacrament. You know, all these were the things that, and, and the crosses as well, all these are the things that form and shape the mind and the heart the most. St. Isaac the Syrian says, knowledge of the cross is found in the experience of the cross. So embracing the crosses in our lives reveals to us the wisdom, the love, the mercy of the cross of Christ. It's not by studying it or reading about it. These are not things that you learn in books. These are th things that you learn by embracing them in, in your day-to-day -day life. And it's our loss of asceticism, the exercise of the faith that has diminished it. You know, it's not a religion, it's a person. Truth for us is a person. And, you know, we have specific beliefs in terms of what has, have been, has been revealed to us through Christ and who God is to us. But it's in and through this living relationship with the living God and hearing the living word that is transformative. And that's not going to make us comfortable. Uh, scripture says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because it's going to upturn our life completely. And that's, uh, that's what we need to happen. It's not by giving the correct answer to somebody that's going to change their life. It might clarify their understanding on some level, and we should take that opportunity, but it's, it's not going to transform lives. Again, look at the example of some of the saints, Seraphim of Serov, or again, in the West, uh, Francis of Assisi. You know, it, it's by his per very person that you know, he spoke to the hearts of others. There's a movie about Francis of Assisi. I don't particularly like it. It was made back in the 60s. Brother, Son, Sister Moon. Did I already mention this? No, I And um, his friend Bernardo uh, was a, a, uh, a crusader. 
And, but when he comes back finally to the town, Philip, or I'm sorry, Francis had already had his conversion. And so Bernardo comes back into town and he's revered as this crusader has come back. And, uh, and he, hear, he asks his friends, Where, where's Francis at? And they said, oh, he's gone out of his mind. And he says, what do you mean he's gone? I said, he's our dearest friend. We've known him all of our lives. Where is he? And so they finally tell him. And he goes to see, see him at the church that he's rebuilding. Uh, and Bernardo says, Francis, it's, it's, it's me. And he says, I want to help you. And Francis turns to him and he says, words, Bernardo, words. There was a time when I believed in words. And I think the longer that I've become, that I've been a priest, the, the more that I believe that. There was a time that I believed in words. I, I certainly don't believe in my own most of the time. I know they're stilted by my own ego or by my laziness or my neglect of the spiritual life. And certainly the words that fill the air and fill the church often have nothing to do with Christ. You know, all the battles that we hear, all the arguments, the, the great divisions within the church, absolutely nothing to do with the things that we've been talking about or what's at the heart of the gospel. We've turned it into that because of the sin in our hearts and our pride. And that's what we need to free ourselves from. And that only takes place by engaging Christ truly through the ascetical life. Yes. First of all, thank you for your time and all this, but not but, but and, um, <laughs> the evangelical councils as, as this um, represents. I, what that brought to my mind is just like this new evangelization movement, if you will, for how many decades now that we've been called to as Catholics. And what this, what's really struck me in these teachings is that how are we, as a people, supposed to go out and evangelize? And what, what, does, what is that then? If we're so far from the very nature of poverty and chastity and obedience within our desire to be united to God, what is all the noise about then? Like, so if we're sending people out and saying, listen to praise and worship music, have a great dinner together, and go mm -hmm. out and spread the good news. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm very, it's very striking to me how far off the mark that is. And I'm not saying that everything's bad about, you right. know, the community element of sharing a meal and <clears throat> music that makes, that moves you. Mm -hmm. um, but so much of it has been so modern in a sense of getting away from like, that quiet moment to like really enter into like the movement of a music that can stir your soul to realize that that there's something more than just erroneously running out in the streets and labbing whatever it is that you think is right. what we're supposed to evangelize about. So it's very striking right. to me, very confusing yeah. at the same time because I see this as very much part of like the neighborhood here in a sense of what some of the churches are doing around us. And and even when it comes to spiritual warfare and like these deliverance um, type of services that are being held, 
it, it takes so much out, away from like, but where's, what's my part in this rather than what's being done to me, like in my lineage or, or whatever. That's right. Yeah. So if we lack this focus upon Christ, if our gaze is taken off of him, and then we are simply, and if we lack the silence to listen to the word that is being spoken to our hearts, then you're, we're going to do exactly what you describe. We're going to add to the noise of the world, that our word is not going to penetrate the din of the world's noise. In fact, we're just going to add to it. What needs to take place is, again, simply to, to focus upon Christ. Father Val and I were talking before the group that what takes place up here is more, is to take primacy over what takes place down here. It's what shapes this. It's our prayer, our worship, what we receive at the altar, then that shapes the dynamic that exists between all of us, and that then will shape the way that we engage the world around us, the way that we evangelize. If we turn this you know, new, evangeli new evangelization into a catchphrase, and that we're trying to repackage the ways that we've talked about Christianity for the last couple of generations, I can understand your pessimism because that's what it can be. We're rebranding something that hasn't worked already. And so we have to step back from that. And you know, one of the, the best books, I think, and I think prophetic, and maybe not paid it enough attention to, was by Cardinal Seurat. You know, all this stuff going on within the life of the church, and what does he write? But a book called The Power of Silence. And part of that is because he had gone on retreats throughout the course of his priesthood, but also in serving as bishop and cardinal to Carthusians and had been formed in that spiritual tradition of listening. And so intuitively he, knew, he knows that what needs to take place first is not for us to be talking, but for us to enter into a deep silence that we might hear again what God is saying to our generation and more importantly, what he's speaking to our hearts in terms of the kind of conversion that is needed there. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we can expend a lot of energy. It's sort of like that infatuation, false light. We can be running full, full, full strength, but off in the wrong direction altogether. When, when in reality, the kingdom of God is within, within our own hearts. And if we can't hear that, then we're not going to certainly be able to communicate it to others. Huh. Well, thank you, Father David, for leading us into the <laughs> desert, guiding us through the desert towards Jerusalem. Thank you. For sharing with us the, the wisdom, the, the beauty of our Eastern fathers. And prophetically, you mentioned the city of Edessa. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we would like to present to you the holy napkin, Beautiful. the image of that Thank has you. been in Edessa Beautiful. during this time, especially during uh -huh. this time of the Great Fast. As Thank we, you. It's beautiful. And a little gift from our parish family Thank for you your ministry. So much. And we that. ask you to please remember us in your prayers, in your priestly ministry, Absolutely. as we follow our Thank Lord you. Jesus Christ, as we strive towards that theosis, towards that communion with God in our lives. Grant, O oh Lord, to your servant 
Father David, peace, health, and happiness for many happy and blessed years. God grant him many years. God grant him many years. God grant him many blessed years. In health and happiness. In health and happiness. Thank you so much. Past three weeks, it's been wonderful. And please pray for vocations, pray for our families, for our parish families, so that we may truly embrace what the fathers of the church have given us throughout these centuries as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ. So God bless you all too. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Let me turn the mic off. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.